We are going to be reading Acts 2, 1 through 16. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly from heaven there came a sound like a rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as a fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages, as the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem, and at the sound the crowd gathered and was be bewildered, because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. In our own languages, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others sneered and said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter standing with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and listen to what I say. Indeed, they are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only nine o'clock in the morning. No, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. I'm going to continue in verse 41. So those who welcomed his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 persons were added they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Awesome. Good morning, everyone. My name is Lane. I'm the lead pastor here at Red Hills Church. And today we are continuing in our summer series called Our Origin Story, journeying through the book of Acts. Last week, we looked at the ascension of Christ, which is a very strange and incredibly powerful moment in church history when Jesus went back to glory to be seated at the right hand of the Father, promising that he would send the Spirit to come to the disciples and give them power. Looking back on this moment, we can embrace as a church that a human is a part of the Trinity. That a person who wore our flesh and blood, who lived and died and resurrected as one of us, now sits on the throne of glory and is sending us into the world as his representatives, his agents, his witnesses of the kingdom of heaven. And through the Spirit, he is actually closer to us now than ever before. So what Christ has done has saved the world, and now we are his plan through the Spirit to continue healing it. Now, today is a really important day in history as we look back on the day of Pentecost and how the Spirit came to be with us and in us, how it empowered humanity, and how it today still moves through humanity. Now, this story is so, so crucial because Jesus gave the church a really big mission, right? He asked the disciples to go from where they were to the ends of the earth, teaching them in the ways of Jesus and baptizing them in his name. It's a tall order. It's a big deal. 
And especially, it was a lot to ask of 12 men from Galilee, these simple men, and a smattering of followers. And I think they must have been thinking when, when God gave them this task, what a lot of us think when we face down the mission of the church today. How? How? How are we going to do that? That is too much. Good luck. Not me. Everyone throughout history in their time and in their context has to come face to face with the temptation to give up hope. We have all come face to face with the reality that what God has asked us to do is impossible. Therefore, we cannot do it apart from his power and his presence. And if this is true of the world and of Christians, this is also true of you personally, that God has given you a mission that is too big for you, that's impossible without him. But in his presence and in his power, you are able to do more than you ever thought was possible. And you are able to see him do more than you ever thought you'd see. Through his power and his presence, we have everything we need to accomplish the task that he has given us. Through his presence and through his power, he's given us a couple of things. One, he's given us the nearness of his affection. And two, he's given us his power to carry out the mission. So today we're going to unpack the story of Pentecost. We're going to look back at what Pentecost was to them, the significance of Pentecost in their culture, what it means to us, and what it does not mean for us. And then we're going to examine what it looks like for the people of God who are empowered by that same Spirit, what our role is, the Spirit we read about in this story, and how it impacts how we live out the mission of God. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are here with us. We ask that you would move and that you would speak, that we would hear from you. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so let's get into the text. So we find ourselves with the disciples after the events of Acts chapter 1, when Jesus ascends, goes to be worshiped and glorified with the Father. And before he left, we read in Luke, remember Luke and Acts are a part one and a part two of the gospel, right? We read at the end of Luke that Jesus told them to go and wait. Go and wait for the Father to send power. That power would come upon them that they'd get to be his witnesses from there to the ends of the earth. So they've all gathered together. Many believe that they've gathered in the same upper room where Jesus washed their feet and they had the Last Supper together. We don't know for sure, but a lot of people assume that that's where they are. And now this is all happening during the festival of Pentecost. Now, Pentecost was already a festival that the Jewish people recognized before this day in history. It was known as the Festival of Weeks. It was a festival of harvest. And this would take place 50 days after the the festival of Passover. So, during the festivals of Passover and Pentecost, the Jewish diaspora, or the Jewish people that are scattered from all over, from many diverse nations, they would embark on this pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate with all of God's people at the temple. So at this time, there would have been tons of Jews visiting from all over their known world to gather in Jerusalem. Now, Passover, of course, was this remembrance of the events of what? The Exodus, right? Where Moses led the people of, of uh, the Jews out of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land, rescuing them from oppression and death. And now the festival of Pentecost is the time when people all over would bring the first fruits of their harvest. First fruits, the first of whatever they were harvesting, they would bring as an offering to God, to bring it as worshiped him, to commemorate the flourishing of their society and dedicate that to God's deliverance and his promises, right? So the Passover 
recognizes that God delivered the people out of oppression and death, and Pentecost recognizes that God delivers them into flourishing and abundance. Does that make sense? So Passover, Pentecost. Now, we see some parallelism, parallelism excuse me, happening in this point in the story. So Jesus was taken to be crucified during what? The Passover. And at this time, they were remembering the Exodus story when the angel of death passed over God's chosen people if it saw the covering of a spotless lamb's blood over the doorways, right? Now, Jesus, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, spills his blood to cover humanity as oppression and death passes over God's people. So the Hebrew people, they were wonderful at tying these themes together in really poetic ways. And now, at the festival of Pentecost, the festival of weeks, the festival of the harvest, where people would normally bring their first fruits of the, of the harvest, of the season, to, the God, to God as worship, at the tabernacle, which housed his presence, now the human first fruits of God's harvest, over 3,000, are gathered together before the new tabernacles, human beings themselves, who now carry the presence of God. Do you see the parallelism happening here? They're doing this on purpose. God is still being God, but he's doing a new thing. God is creating this this poetry. He's rhyming with himself, right? So the disciples, they've been given this great commission by God to be witnesses of his kingdom to the ends of the earth, to teach and baptize people in the way of Jesus. And of course, this mission feels insurmountable. It feels impossible. But Jesus tells them, go and wait. Wait for power to come upon you. So they're in this place, and they're praying, and they're waiting, and they're fasting, and suddenly, this great wind blows through the room. Can you imagine? Powerful moment. So the wind, the breath of God, and his spirit. Throughout the Bible, these have kind of been connected themes. All the way back from the Genesis uh, creation narrative, the wind of God has been associated with his breath and with his spirit. They're almost interchangeable terms. And here, we are meant to remember the imagery in Genesis, right? Because in the beginning, the spirit of God hovered over the chaos of the deep, and he brought uh, his spirit, his breath, into human beings to give them life. And now, during this new creation story, in the church... The Spirit of God hovers over them, indwells in them, filling them with his presence. Now, this presence is really important because this is the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, listen to me. The gift of the Holy Spirit is not a tool or a power for us to manipulate, which is how I've often been told what the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is there to help you do incredible things. And it's kind of true, but it's also missing a really important thing. The Spirit of God is not just this thing that you can conjure. The Spirit of God is God himself. The gift of the Holy Spirit is not a fun new toy. The gift of the Holy Spirit is God's presence in your life. The Holy Spirit is not a tool to help you carry out your agenda. The Holy Spirit is our God who promises us to be with us and to partner with us in carrying out his mission, right? So the Spirit of God also manifests in these flames that appear over people's heads. I don't really know what that would look like or what they're talking about, but that's wild. Now, fire was associated with the presence of God and specifically the purifying power of God's presence. I'm reminded of this passage in Isaiah 6, right, where the prophet Isaiah has this vision of God in the temple, and Isaiah is undone 
by the majesty of the Lord. He says, woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the glory of the Lord Almighty. But then in this vision, something unexpected happens in Isaiah. An angel of the Lord grabs a white-hot coal, goes to Isaiah, and touches his unclean lips and purifies them. What? We see Jesus is doing this, living in a culture where the unclean were avoided, right? So that their impurity would not be transferred onto me. If they were sick, if they were a leper, if they were ritually impure, I don't want their impurity touching me. But Jesus goes to the impure and the unclean, and he touches them. Instead of their impurity being passed to him, his purity is changing them. This is what Jesus does. What Christ has done was sufficient to save the world, and now, empowered by the red, hot power of his Spirit, we are his plan to continue healing it. So he washes us and he cleanses us for the purifying power of his work. Okay, so that's the wind of God, that's the fire of God, that's the spirit and presence of God, and it's the heat of God's holiness and the purifying power of God. Now, there are a couple of great reversals that are happening in this story. The first great reversal is Peter's. This is a man who has denied Jesus three times publicly, and now he is leading the way in proclaiming the good news of Christ. Christ's forgiveness was so ultimate is so complete that not even a public denial can be enough. That even a public denial of Christ can be covered by his love. There is no transgression that can stand in the way of what God wants to do now. He's been made clean, and now he's become a vessel of God's good work in the world. Then there's a second great reversal, and that's the reversal of Babel or Babel. How many of you remember the story of the Tower of Babel in the Old Testament? Yeah, that was a crazy moment in biblical history. I read it, and I'm like, I don't know if I totally understand what's going on here, right? Where these proto-Babylonians, they've made these great technological and cultural advancements in their society, and they decided that they wanted to build this huge structure to ascend to the heavens and become gods, right? This is an echo of the first temptation in the Genesis story, of the serpent, right? To discern for yourself what is good and what is evil, to rebel against God's instruction, to lean on your own power and your own understanding is to become like God. So the Babylonians are creating this monument to their own hubris. And so God sees this and confuses their languages so that they can't understand each other, and he scatters them. So they have to now abandon this this project, this construction project, and they have to scatter. Now at the day of Pentecost, God gathers those who are scattered, gathers those who speak different languages, and he reverses the confusion with understanding, with translation, right? We see this dynamic all throughout the scriptures of Babylon, of empire, and of the kingdom. We see this all the time, where human beings want to ascend to the heavens in their own power. God desires to bring heaven to earth through the power of his spirit. Where human beings want to ascend to the heavens through their own power, God desires to bring heaven to earth through the power of his spirit. So the disciples are tasked with declaring the good news to this diverse group of people from Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, but they probably only speak like Aramaic and Greek. It's probably all they speak. So the disciples receive the power of the Holy Spirit, and suddenly they start speaking full intelligible languages that they don't speak. And now we get this impression that when the wind of God blew through the room, 
that it made this great noise. It said a great noise like a wind moved through the room. And many who were now gathered in the city gathered around to kind of see what was going on. And the disciples are talking and speaking to the masses below, and they are proclaiming the good news of Jesus to everyone who is gathered from all over. And the people are hearing it in their own native languages. Isn't that wild? It's insane. And some of the people watching think it is too, right? Because if you didn't speak some of the languages that they're speaking, it would have sounded like this chaotic cacophony of voices. But to those who hear in their own language, it says that they were amazed and astonished. This word for amazed and astonished, it kind of carries the same connotation when like, the, Jesus like, silenced the, the sea with the storm and they were amazed and terrified. It's this idea that they were both thrilled and really scared. <laughs> there was this holy moment that the people were hearing. They, they were in awe of what they were seeing. That these men from Galilee, <laughs> who had a reputation for being uneducated, were all speaking in these languages. Now, there are some hecklers who are like, dude, these guys are just drunk. They've had too much new wine. And Peter's like, I heard that. We're not drunk. It's 9 a.m., bro. Jesus liked wine. He didn't like it that much, right? So Peter addresses them. And now this is really cool. This really cool thing happens to Peter. Peter's not an educated man. But because of the Spirit of God in Peter, his eyes are opened to the Scriptures in a new way. Peter gives this big expositional sermon on the prophet Joel. We skipped it for your reading pleasure this morning. But it's this long expositional sermon. And suddenly, all of these prophecies and passages that he's been steeped in his whole life come alive to him in a new way. And he began to teach about how Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that they have been praying and longing for all along. That it all pointed to Jesus. And all the, there were hecklers, 3,000 people, stepped into the way of Jesus and the church, ignited by God to do the impossible that day. So we see here, what we see is the people of God being given exactly what they need to carry out the impossible mission that God has given them. Jesus wants the whole world, from Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, to know his love and to follow him into the hope of a new humanity under the power of the resurrection. And he tells his disciples that they're the ones who are going to do it, that they're going to be the ones to spread the news in this way. But it feels big because there's literally a language barrier. But through the Spirit, the disciples learn how to speak the languages of the people. Even Peter, who was speaking, we think, in his own native tongue of Aramaic, he's learning how to speak the cultural language of the people. They understand the Torah and the temple. That's what they get. They're Jews. And Peter starts translating Jesus. And he says, Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that you have been studying your whole life. Everything that we've known up to this point has been leading to Jesus. So he's translating too, even if it's in his own language. What God did in this story, friends, he wants to do through us. It may look radically different today than it did back then. But God is still God. And his heart for his people and the world does not change. He wants us to do his mission. It hasn't changed all the way from Abraham before Israel was even a nation. He says, Abraham, I want to use you to bless the nations. And now he wants us to bless the world through his spirit. So how do we live out the blessing of the church? It's a loaded question, isn't it? 
Because right now we're living in a culture where there's a dialogue happening and people are questioning, is the church even a blessing? (laughs) How do we live out the blessing of the church? Well, Peter revealed to the Jewish people that Jesus was the answer to all their prayers, right? The call for us is to show people that Jesus is the answer to their prayers. All people have desires for identity and for belonging, community, and purpose, and meaning. Even if people don't know it, they are looking for Jesus. But when we hear this, if you're anything like me, you start feeling all this pressure, all this anxiety, right? You're like, listen, I I don't like parties. I don't like being around people. I have social anxiety. I'm afraid of being judged as a hypocrite if I even say that I'm a Christian. What if I pray for someone and nothing happens? You start running through all these scenarios. Anyone else like me out there? Okay, thank you for the honest people. Yeah, yeah. I see that hand. Yes. (laughs) We start experiencing all this fear when we look at the impossible mission that God has given us. God, this is impossible. We can face it with fear or we can embrace it knowing that we are loved by Christ. He loves us. He's not going to put us in harm's way on purpose. Well, no, he will. But it'll be for his good and his glory, right? So fear pushes us to believe that we need to anxiously try to make God's mission happen when Christ's love invites us to wait for him. Fear pushes us to believe that we need to anxiously try to make God's mission happen when Christ's love invites us to wait for him. Notice that Jesus gave the disciples this task. Then they spent seven days fasting and praying and waiting on God to send them what they needed. Because when human beings get into survival mode, we tend to be really reactive, right? We allow our anxiety to push us into this instinctual behavior, which is more about this fearful self-preservation. We, we act more like animals than like humans, right? Jesus is always wanting to make us more fully human, the way that he was perfectly human. So it helps that when we feel anxious, when we feel that fear, when we feel that reactivity rising up inside of us, that we learn how to rest and cease and wait to receive from God what he has for us, to embrace his love. That's the reason why after we get like a nasty email or we want to send a nasty email, (laughs) the sound advice is always to draft it first and then wait a day. (laughs) Wait 24 hours to send it because what happens? In the moment that we get poked, that we get aggravated by someone, that we want to lash out. There's this defense mechanism to defend myself, right? But then we have 24 hours to sleep on it, and we realize, you know what? I do not have to come back that hard. There's another way to address this issue, right? It gains a different perspective in your mind. The same principle is in effect when it comes to the mission of God in the church. The world can feel really messed up, right? And engender all of this fear, which triggers us to react anxiously. But when we remember the fundamental truth of our relationship with God and our identity is that we are loved by him, deeply loved by him, we don't need to be afraid. We just have to wait. Listen and receive what he has for us. Receive what God is bringing for us to heal in our context. We can release our anxiety and take hold of peace because we've not been given a sales pitch of the kingdom. We're not salesmen. That's what it feels like, right? Go evangelize. Go and and sell Jesus. That's not what we've been given. We've been given the love of God to receive for ourselves. And we don't need to sell it into someone's life. We just need to share it from our own, right? The second thing that fear does is that it triggers our shame 
And it pushes us into this belief that God won't use me because I am innately unusable, right? It shows us that we have this hard time receiving the love of God for ourselves. We have a hard time believing that he is actually with us like he promised and that he will give us what we need for the mission. There's this belief baked in that God chooses to move in and through those people, but he won't choose me. What that tells me is that maybe I haven't received the transformative power of God's love and his forgiveness. Fear pushes us to believe that God won't use us because of whatever, because of what I've suffered, because of what I've done, because of who I am. But the love of Christ invites us to trust the forgiving, cleansing, and purifying power of his spirit. The way people come to follow Jesus is by encountering his love, right? Even if Peter who publicly denied Christ three times while his Lord and his teacher and his friend was being brutally executed, if even he can become the leader of the church, how good and perfect and complete must the love of God be? That even I, who have sinned and broken relationships beyond repair, I can be redeemed and I can become a vessel of the love of God. What good news is that to the broken and the lost, right? Christ tells his disciples to go and be his witnesses, but it's difficult to be a witness of what God has done in my life if I don't believe what he said he did. I have to be a witness to the love of God in my life before I can witness to someone else. Oh, that's good. I'm going to write that down. (laughs) Perhaps there's this struggle within you, right, that you are insufficient the way you are to be used by God. But it is not by your power and your wisdom that you are a testament to God's love. It is actually your brokenness and your dependence upon him which signals to how good God is. That you are not the savior, that you are being saved, right? Now, the third thing that fear does is it convinces us that the job is just too big, that it is actually impossible. But Christ's love invites us to trust that the spirit equips you to speak the language of your context. Fear pushes you to believe that it's just too big, but trust in the Spirit equips you for, to speak the language in your own context. So this is where what happened through the Spirit at Pentecost applies directly to us. We are here to share the love of God with the world, which means that you are here to share the love of God in your world. In other words, you are uniquely equipped by the Spirit to translate the love of God in your context. You receive power from the Holy Spirit to break the language barrier, to minister and serve in the love of Christ in a way that only you can where you can. In your workplace, in your social clubs, your schools, your regular places of business, through the Spirit, you are given the ability to translate the love of God in a language that they can receive. And for us living in the West, this is an increasingly post-Christian context, right? Our language barrier is unique because in some ways it's a barrier of our own making. This is hard. Unfortunately, the church, I'm not talking about Red Hills specifically, I mean the church in the West, we got really good at the talking bit, but we really struggle with the listening bit, right? How many of us get hurt by the church when people in the name of God speak before they listen, right? And please know that this portion of the message is for me. It's for me. I was naturally really good at preaching at people. 
But I had to really discipline myself to learn the way of James, right? To be quick to listen and slow to speak. Notice that a big part of the story is about how they gathered and they waited and they prayed. Sometimes we skip the listening and the understanding and we jump right to the speaking because we've been conditioned to believe that we need to have all the answers right away instead of learning to believe that Christ holds really good questions. If the love of God is going to be effective at drawing people to him, we have to learn how to convey the love of God in the language that they speak. And to do that, we have to learn the questions that people are asking. I was at a conference, and this, this, the speaker, a, a Christian author named Dr. Kara Powell, she said, the problem with the church is that we are often answering questions that people aren't asking. And I said, ouch, but okay. So if the church wants to be effective at translating the love of God in its context, Jesus' followers have to partner with the Spirit in hearing those questions, the cries, and the pains of the people. We have to embody empathy. Listen, I'm not saying that an old-school evangelism or a divine appointment, you know, starting up a random conversation with people, it doesn't work. I'm not saying that. The Spirit is fully able to move in that way. But right now, our culture is overloaded with people preaching at them overloaded, from every opinion, from every agenda, right? Sometimes the loudest voice in the room or the most intriguing voice in the room is the one that isn't shouting. So we have to learn to hear the questions that people are asking. We have to learn people's deepest longings and desires. And the way that Peter was able to reveal that Jesus is what they were looking for all along, if we take the time to learn the hurts and the desires of people's souls, we have the ability to translate the revelation of Jesus and who he's really been all along to them, to them. Because every desire that human beings have, they're faint reflections of their ultimate desire, which is what? To be reconciled to the embrace of God's love. That's their ultimate desire, even if they don't know it. And because the Spirit of God is in you, you have the ability to extend that love around people in your context and give them a taste and an introduction to the love of God, a God who longs for them just as much as they knowingly or unknowingly know it for themselves. <laughs> Unfortunately, people have heard the name Jesus, and they've constructed a version of him which is inaccurate. There's an issue in the translation, right? Because people have spoken before they've listened. People need to see the real Jesus. And sometimes the words we want to use are too loaded, right? We are empowered by the Spirit to speak the language, to contextualize Jesus to the people in our lives, to show them in love that Jesus is the fulfillment of their deepest longings. So sometimes it's not the talking which actually best translates the love of God in our context, but rather the listening and the serving to embody the reality that the God we're pointing them to is the God who sees you. Demonstrating a tangible love through, for people through the way that we serve them, the way that we listen and understand them, rather than the way that we listen to argue or rebuttal, right? The power of service, hospitality, empathy has become the language that we need to learn to speak. When we invite the Spirit of God, perhaps like Peter, the culture we've been steeped in all along might come alive in a new way to show that everything has always pointed to Jesus. So friends, the blessing and outpouring of the Spirit of Pentecost is hope for us. It reveals to us that, that God's love is complete, 
that he has forgiven and purified us, that he's with us, that his spirit, his breath empowers us to translate the love of God in our context. He's given us everything we need to carry out this impossible mission, to spread his love in the world. In the same way that the Spirit of God in Genesis hovered over the chaos of the deep and gave purpose to humanity, that same Spirit hovers over the chaos of our hearts and the anxiety of our souls, and He gives us presence and purpose. What would it look like to carry with us this non-anxious presence, which is not submitted to fear? The confidence that God is with me, that He deeply loves me, and that nothing that He has for me is too big because of His power and His presence that gives me what I need. What would it look like to become the kind of church that has the reputation of being great listeners, people who carry with them this non-anxious confidence in God's ability to love people? We're going to enter into a time of silent reflection, and here's what I want. Sometimes praying to receive the Holy Spirit can kind of be like an intimidating thing, because there's a lot of expectations as to what that needs to look like, right? I myself come from a pretty charismatic context to which I owe a lot of blessing in my life, and I owe a little bit of hurt to as well. But here's the thing. If it's God, it must be good. If it's God, it must be good. So we don't need to approach this invitation with fear. What if it doesn't, what if I don't, what if, we don't need any of that. I believe that if you want all of what God has for you, he will give it to you. You just have to ask. So when we ask for the Holy Spirit, sometimes I've found that a helpful prayer is just to say, God, I want all that you have for me. I want all that you have for me. And a lot of the people that I've studied, they've talked about this day of Pentecost as if it's supposed to be a recurring event, as if the filling of the Spirit, this fresh breath, is supposed to happen on a regular basis, which actually makes sense because breathing is like that, isn't it? As I breathe in, the oxygen that I need and I expel the carbon dioxide that I don't, in the same way, I think our lives with Jesus become this rhythm of an inpouring of his spirit, that he's constantly giving to us his life as we get rid of what we don't need. And so as we step into this time, that's what we're going to pray for. Um, We're going to sit in silence, and I just want you to invite the Holy Spirit. I want all that you have for me. I want all that you have for me. Set any expectations aside. Holy Spirit, I want all that you have for me. Then we're going to worship, and then I'm going to come back up and and send us into a time of prayer to receive the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm going to have you take communion in your own time. This communion element, this is the example of Christ's love for you. And what the Holy Spirit does is give you a way to share that love that you've received with other people. And so as we worship during the songs, as they're playing, just receive the love of God for yourself. Receive the love of God for yourself and knowing that it is that love, it is that affection, it is that sacrifice, that is what you are giving to the world through the Spirit. Let me pray for us. Lord, I pray that during this time, we would hear from you. We want all that you have for us. We pray, come Holy Spirit, have your way.